Hello and welcome to another Freshfields Tax Matters podcast. I'm Josh Critchlow with the London Tax Team. UK Chancellor Jeremy Hunt has delivered the 2023 Autumn Statement. The OBR reports that the UK economy has proved to be more resilient to the shocks of the pandemic and energy crisis. However, the growth forecasts of the next few years have been reduced and the UK inflation rate is expected to be more persistently high and now only expected to fall to the 2% target in 2025. This has left Jeremy Hunt with only modest fiscal firepower at his disposal, and he used what little he had to send a political message about his party's priorities, with tax cuts for business and both self-employed and employed workers. The national insurance cuts, which will be a welcome boost, are worth about £350 for the average self-employed person and £450 for the average employee. And whilst the self-employment changes will take effect from April, the reduction to employee national insurance contributions will be brought forward to January. Clearly, Jeremy Hunt was keen for people to start to feel these tax cuts in their pockets in good time before a potential election next year. But with inflation still running at an uncomfortable 4.6%, and alongside freezes in thresholds, to some this may feel like thin gruel. With me to analyse the tax policies in this autumn statement, I'm delighted to be joined by Freshfields tax partners May Smith and Peter Clements and senior associate Chris Gotch. Hello, everyone. Hi, Josh. Hi. Hello. To get us started, Chris, can you tell us about the headline tax policy announcement for business? Absolutely. Thanks, Josh. So as regular listeners will know, we covered the introduction of the full expensing regime for an initial three-year period in our podcast on the spring budget back in March of this year. So I won't repeat that discussion in full here. However, by way of broad summary for any new listeners, this measure allowed companies to claim in-year relief on 100% of the amount of expenditure into main rate plant and machinery. So things like warehousing equipment, office equipment, certain commercial vehicles other than cars like lorries and vans, etc., and 50% of the amount of any qualifying special rate capital expenditure, for instance, expenditure on a new electrical system. Under the rules prior to this change, relief would have been spread over time at a rate of 18% per year for main rate plant machinery and 6% per year for special rate expenditure. In this autumn statement, the government has now made this regime permanent, and that should not be seen as a surprise given that all of this was done very much with a view to introducing the regime permanently when fiscal conditions allowed. It's being billed as the largest business tax cut in modern British history, and it's clearly significant based on the numbers just mentioned. For instance, a £10 million investment in main rate plant and machinery would give rise to a potential tax saving of £2.5 in the investment year under these rules, whereas under the old regime, that same investment would only have produced a £450,000 tax saving. Clearly, the benefit is only a timing benefit in substance, but it is a significant one given the length of time it would have taken to reach the same economic position under the old rules. So clearly a good news story for business, albeit this is just extending the horizon of an existing measure? Yes, I think that's certainly right as a general matter, but your your question does raise a couple of interesting points around possible missed opportunities. The first of those is that these allowances are only available in relation to expenditure incurred by existing businesses carrying on a trade or other qualifying activity, and seemingly not being extended to cover new investment, for instance via project companies. Neither does the current full expensing regime cover expenditure on plant and machinery for leasing, although on that point it has been confirmed that a working group has been set up to consider expanding the regime to cover this, and a related technical consultation will be published in due course. 
The second potential missed opportunity is that the pre-existing architecture of the capital allowances regime remains intact. And, and that means that existing technical uncertainties around whether a particular expenditure qualifies for the regime and whether the rather antiquated rules are appropriate for the type of investment made by modern businesses, and indeed the type of businesses the government is presumably keen to encourage, remain as they were. And as we know from recent cases, for instance, the recent HMRC and SSC Generation Limited case heard in the Supreme Court earlier this year, HMRC are prepared to take points around those technical uncertainties. It could be that some of these issues will be the subject of the wider consultation on the capital allowances regime that the government also announced in this autumn statement. With that said, it's worth noting that the government has expressly said that this consultation is not intended to extend the scope of expenditure that is eligible for capital allowances. So, enthusiasm somewhat curbed on on that front. But can businesses be confident that these incentives will remain in place following the election next year? Yeah, it's a fair question. And I think it probably is right to have regard to the impact of possible leadership changes when reviewing these measures. But with regard to this measure in particular, it is worth observing that it appeared to be welcomed by Labour, uh, or at least by Rachel Reeves in the room. So perhaps more chance this relief is here to stay. Moving on to other announcements, we talked about the proposed reforms to the UK's R&D tax regime in our last podcast on the spring budget, including the proposal to merge the two existing R&D regimes, with a possible decision coming at the next fiscal event. We've now reached that point, haven't we, Peter? We have indeed, Josh, and it seems we're moving forward with the merged regime, although it's not quite as simple as that, because the parallel tax relief for loss-making R&D-intensive SMEs is going to be retained. It's already sounding complex. Could you remind us of the current position before the announcements? So as you know, we we currently have two separate tax regimes for R&D, broadly depending on the size of the taxpayer. So small and medium enterprises can claim an enhanced deduction for their R&D qualifying expenditure. This was previously 230% of their expenditure, but was reduced to 186% in last year's autumn statement. And any excess relief under that regime can be surrendered to HMRC for a cash payment at a 10% rate, itself down from 14.5%. On the other hand, large corporates and certain SMEs can claim an above-the-line payable tax credit under the RDEC regime at a rate of 20%, increased from 13% last year. The tax credit is itself taxable. So the end result, as it stands following last year's rate changes, is that the generosity of the two schemes are broadly aligned. But there were nevertheless quite significant design differences and a number of complexities in situations where the two regimes bump up against each other. Hence the confirmation yesterday, as widely expected, that the two regimes will be merged into a single regime, based heavily on the current RDEX scheme with a 20% payable tax credit, but modified uh, by the importing of a number of features from the existing SME scheme as well. Okay, got it. So what's changing? Much of this has already been trailed, actually, with draft legislation having been published for consultation in the summer. However, it represents a a big change for both SMEs and and large corporates. And it's clear from the technical note published yesterday that the legislation to be included in the draft finance bill, hopefully later this year, will have a significant number of changes and additions versus the July draft. Inevitably, there will be a lot of devil in the detail. One particularly important design feature of the new regime is the way in which it will apply in relation to subcontracted R&D activities. Currently, under the RDEC regime, there's no relief, or only very limited relief, for expenditure on subcontracted R&D. Instead, the relief falls to be claimed by the the person to whom the R&D has been subcontracted. Under the new merged regime, however, the default's going to be reversed. 
This will leave the person who is responsible for initiating the R&D project as the person entitled to claim the RDEC credit, with certain exceptions to legislate for scenarios where, for example, a UK subcontractor is working for a non-UK taxpayer. Clearly, this is going to give rise to winners and losers as compared to the current regime, and I fear the overall picture is probably quite complex. The technical note published yesterday gives a flavour of the intended principles, but until we see the updated draft legislation, there inevitably remains uncertainty around some of the key boundary issues. One helpful clarification in yesterday's published materials was the confirmation that the rules relating to subsidised expenditure would be removed from the draft legislation, which should allow relief under the MERS regime for qualifying R&D costs, even if they're met by another person or by a grant. And there's also a boost for loss-making companies, as the notional tax on the RDEC credit will now be calculated at 19% rather than the full corporation tax rate of 25%. Okay, that's good news. But on the topic of loss-making companies, you mentioned earlier that even though we're merging the two regimes into a single RDEC regime, we'll still have this separate parallel regime for certain loss-making R&D-intensive companies. Can you tell us more about that? Yes, indeed. As you'll remember, the the new concept of a loss-making R&D-intensive SME was first announced this time last year. Uh, in in last year's autumn statement. The intention was to allow startups that are engaged in R&D intensive activities and that are loss-making to benefit from a regime that's more generous than than both the RDEC and the standard SME regime after the rate changes I mentioned earlier. The intensity of the R&D being a fairly crude indicator of the type of innovative business that the government is keen to promote in the UK. Specifically, these R&D intensive companies are entitled to the 186% super deduction under the existing regime, but can surrender the excess relief to HMRC at the higher rate of 14.5% rather than the standard 10%, effectively equating to a net cash credit of 27% versus the standard 18.6% for non-R&D intensive companies. So this regime is going to continue in parallel with the new MERS regime, such that R&D intensive companies will claim the R&D intensive relief for so long as they're loss making, and then they'll flip into the merged RDEC regime when they become profitable. Uh, So perhaps it's fair to say it's not such a simplification exercise after all, at least for companies in that category. And I should say that for this purpose, a a company is an R&D intensive company if its qualifying R&D expenditure exceeds a specified percentage of its total expenditure. Initially, the threshold was set at 40%. However, it was announced yesterday that with effect from the 1st of April 2024, this is going to be reduced to 30%, which the government says will bring in an additional 5,000 SMEs within the scope of the regime. It sounds like there's a lot for taxpayers in this space to get their head around. Yes, that is certainly the case. And inevitably, there'll be an increase in complexity in the short term as businesses get to grips with the new regime. A number of the industry bodies had voiced their concern that the proposals were moving too fast and should be delayed. In the end, however, there's only been a small deferral versus what was proposed in the draft legislation in July. The new MERS regime will now take effect for accounting periods beginning on or after 1st of April 2024, rather than, as was initially proposed, applying to any expenditure incurred after that date. So taxpayers with calendar year ends will have a little longer to work through the implications, although it's still likely to be a challenge particularly for SME taxpayers and particularly for those who stand to lose out significantly as a result of the changes to the subcontracting rules. More generally, with yesterday's announcements, the government has officially declared its review of the R&D tax regime completed. On the one hand, this is good news. There's been a lot of change in the last couple of years and business will crave a period of stability and certainty. 
On the other hand, there remain pretty significant shortcomings, in particular in relation to the really quite outdated and unhelpfully vague definition of R&D and the lack of clear and up-to-date HMRC guidance. Without more efforts in this area, uncertainty will continue to act as a drag in the regime, and the unacceptably high levels of non-compliance will continue to be a problem. Longer term, it remains to be seen whether the reforms will achieve the government's aim of reducing complexity, minimising abuse, and attracting investment in high-value innovation. Speaking of the long term, Josh, what news on the review of the long-term tax regime for North Sea oil and gas? So yes, for oil and gas companies, we received the outcome of a review on the long-term fiscal regime for the North Sea, which had been announced in light of the shock to confidence in UK fiscal stability following the introduction of the energy profits levy windfall tax last year. The review acknowledges the importance of fiscal stability to investors and confirms that energy profits levy will end as scheduled in 2028 or earlier if energy prices fall below the levels set by the so-called energy security investment mechanism and that no additional changes are planned to the permanent fiscal regime. However, any message of certainty provided by the review is really undermined by a proposal to design measures for how taxes could be raised in future if there was a future oil price shock, admitting that future windfall taxes are likely a fact of life for oil companies. And it goes without saying that none of this is binding on a future government anyway, and we know in the past that Labour has called for even heavier taxes on the industry. On the positive side, there now appears to be considerable momentum towards supporting an industry of carbon capture utilisation and storage in the UK. And the review contained proposals for energy companies to obtain tax relief when funds are set aside for infrastructure which is being reused. This should help prevent tax barriers to reuse of energy infrastructure. For green electricity generators, there is now going to be an exemption from electricity generators levy so that they will not need to pay the 45% tax on revenues, on any new projects or extensions to existing projects that reach final investment decision from now on. After some recent setbacks in the pace of clean energy developments, this will be a welcome development for the industry, although in practice, it's not likely to benefit many projects due to the limited time until the electricity generators levy is expected to sunset anyway in 2028. And moving on to May, what what caught your eye in the autumn statement announcements? Well, I wouldn't say they're quite as high profile as some of the ones we've already talked about, but it's always worth checking for stamp duty announcements, and there are a couple this time. One relates to the 1.5% charge that can apply when shares are issued or transferred into clearance services or depositories. It had already been confirmed that there would be legislation to make sure no 1.5% charge arose when shares were issued, and that's the current position, but needed to be put onto a statutory footing because retained EU case law won't apply from the end of this year. We had been waiting, though, to see whether HMRC would listen to calls to make sure the charge didn't apply to a broader range of transfers into those systems. And it seems as though we've got that with the latest legislation. In addition, it's helpful to see confirmation that the legislation will apply from January 2024 under published Ways and Means resolutions. The other announcement on the stamp duty front was a welcome expansion of the growth market exemption from 2024 as well. Currently, to benefit from the exemption, shares have to be admitted to trading on a recognised stock exchange where the companies traded on that exchange either have sufficiently low market cap or they have a minimum expected rate of growth. And the change that's been proposed is for the exemption to apply for shares traded on FCA regulated MTFs as well. And the companies on them will be able to have about three times higher levels of market market capitalisation. So it should mean that a broader range of companies can qualify for the exemption. Chris, anything else jump out? 
Yeah, one thing that caught my eye was the proposed IR35 legislation to allow HMRC to reduce the PAYE liability of a deemed employer to reflect taxes paid by the relevant intermediary or worker where the rules have not been applied correctly. These rules are notoriously difficult to apply in practice, and in an M&A context in particular, it's often a point that comes up in due diligence. A measure of comfort is sometimes taken from HMRC having discretion to set off tax already paid by the worker or intermediary against the deemed employer's liability if it is shown that the rules ought to have been applied to a particular engagement. But that is only a discretion, and in some cases that can be the employer's only meaningful chance to avoid being left out of pocket in relation to the income tax and employee national insurance component. So in that context, it would be very pleasing to have that discretion placed on a more secure footing, and even better if set-off was applied automatically. Although the description of the proposed measure seems to leave open the possibility of this remaining a matter of HMRC discretion, albeit now a statutory one, as opposed to an automatic set-off. You might also hope that this would allow HMRC to charge late payment interest on that lower amount only, as opposed to charging it by reference to the full outstanding PAYE liability. We have seen the latter happen in the past, which is a particularly unfortunate outcome where a portion of the tax has in substance already been paid to HMRC, and also noting that the late payment interest rate outstrips the repayment interest rate. I totally agree, Chris, and hopefully this is representative of a direction of travel that they'll follow in other areas. For example, we see exactly the same sort of point where individual members of an LLP are held to be taxable as employees under the salaried member rules. Currently, there is a statutory discretion for HMRC to offset tax members are paid personally against the LLP's PAYE obligations, but clearly it would be really welcome if this were to happen automatically pursuant to the rules. Yes, indeed. And employment-related securities are another area where this issue can often come up. One other piece of welcome news that caught my eye was the extension of the EIS and VCT tax-favoured regimes out to 2035. The Treasury had already signalled last month in a private letter that some form of extension was contemplated, um, but it'll be a relief to entrepreneurs and early-stage investors that it's now been officially confirmed and that the sunset date has been pushed back a full decade. And was there anything you're expecting to see that wasn't included, other than potential changes to inheritance tax, which of course didn't materialise, or at least not yet? Yes, there were quite a few consultations where updates weren't forthcoming. Having already spoken about stamp duty, I'll just note that it was quite disappointing not to see any update on plans to modernise stamp duty on shares. Our system is now really pretty antiquated. It's an unusual situation where you're having to read legislation from 1891 in order to advise. And it really is getting a bit embarrassing having to explain some of the archaic quirks to international businesses. Yes, I agree. And um, it wouldn't feel right to have a, a podcast without mentioning the OECD's Pillar 1 and 2 proposals. What was said about those in this autumn statement? <laughs> I, I, I agree, Josh. Implementation of the Pillar 2 rules that is, the, the global minimum tax regime is is obviously well underway with the UK versions of the income inclusion rule and the qualified domestic minimum top-up tax taking effect from January 2024. However, the date the UK UTPR would come into effect had not previously been announced. It has now been confirmed that, as expected, this will take effect from January 2025. However, what was less expected was the announcement that the UK offshore receipts in respect to intangible property or ORIP rules will be abolished at the same time, on the basis that the introduction of the UTPR will more comprehensively discourage the multinational tax planning arrangements that ORIP sought to counter, according to the government. This seems to be a sensible tax simplification step and presumably an announcement that will be welcomed by businesses. 
I should probably say something about Pillar 1, although what there is to say there is that not much has happened. Pillar 1 is lagging behind Pillar 2. The amount aid proposal under Pillar 1 is intended, as as people remember, to give so-called market jurisdictions, those being the jurisdictions where goods and services are used or consumed, a new taxing right over residual profits of very large multinationals. And the idea is that they will have that taxing right even if the group has no physical presence in the market jurisdiction. The latest draft of the multilateral convention to implement these rules was published in October this year, but it's not yet in final form and we're told that there are specific items outstanding. That means that the aim of the convention being open for signature by the end of the year is starting to look challenging and against that backdrop, the lack of comment from the Chancellor was perhaps conspicuous in its absence. Thanks, May. And thank you again to all our speakers, May Smith, Peter Clements and Chris Scotch for joining me for this autumn statement discussion. If listeners would like to discuss any of the issues raised in the podcast today, please get in touch with your usual Freshfields contact or any of our podcast speakers. And finally, from me, Josh Critchlow, thanks for listening and goodbye.